So then, 7.35. The Korean miracle extends exactly as far as the armies of free nations advance in 1953. There it stops. It all comes to an end. Dead stop. The flourishing ends and the prison state of North Korea sadly begins. US President Donald Trump's words in a 40-minute speech to the National Assembly here yesterday. The first time we've seen a US president stand up and address lawmakers since Bill Clinton in 1993. Let's bring in Evans Revere, non-resident senior fellow of Foreign Policy Brookings Institute, a former US Department of State member. Thank you very much for taking the time. A pleasure to be with you. What was your own reaction to that address a little bit longer than we were expecting? I thought it was a very uh, tough and uh, strong speech, and uh, there were moments where I actually thought it was uh, quite eloquent and it was very artfully crafted. Uh, I also thought that it was uh, thankfully lacking in some of the uh, personal attacks and, and bombast and, and rather unpresidential uh, rhetoric that has uh, occasionally characterized uh, the president's previous speeches, but on the whole I thought it was uh, a good, solid message. Uh, I also thought that the uh, the military message contained in it was uh, very clear and very strong. Uh, there was no need to to dwell on that message. It was clear enough, and of course the president did not, and I thought that was a good move. And then finally, uh, the core of the speech, I thought, was uh, a very, very strong attack on the very nature of the North Korean regime itself, including that segment that you just uh, that you just read. Mm. Uh, and I thought, as I was listening to that, that that is not going to sit very well in, in Pyongyang, and indeed it has not. Yeah, the, the human rights abuses uh, that President Trump repeatedly highlighted, the disregard for ordinary North Koreans of the Pyongyang regime. At the same time, President Trump said he was prepared to look beyond that if North Korea still comes forward. He, he suggested time's running out, but there is still time for Kim Jong-un to make amends. Well, I thought it was helpful to remind the North Koreans and to remind the international community that uh, that U.S. policy consists of, of two legs, uh, one of which is, is of course, the, the track of, uh, of overwhelming pressure and isolation on North Korea, including the threats of, of the possible use of, of uh, force. But the other leg is uh, dialogue and diplomacy and a willingness to sit down and talk things through, and I thought that was extremely helpful. But uh, to the extent that the president uh, dwelt on the nature of the regime and its human rights abuses, all of that is true, by the way. Uh, he could have gone even further, and I have in some speeches that I've given. Uh, it, it has a tendency to undercut uh, the, uh, the message that says we're willing to forgive and forget and, and sit down and engage with you in dialogue and diplomacy. Because if, if all of those accusations are true, and if the nature of the regime is what it, uh, uh, what it is and what he has said it is, uh, then how can you possibly compromise with a, with a regime like that? And that probably is what the North Koreans are thinking uh, this morning. Yeah, well, the, the thing is, Pyongyang doesn't seem very likely to, um, to respond well, as, as you've already suggested. So where does that then leave us? Uh, President Trump said he's very different to any other administration before him, although he did also say that North Korea shouldn't interpret past U.S. inaction as as weakness. But how, how is he going to demonstrate that difference? Uh, well, in terms of, of uh, history, uh, I thought the president made a good point, uh, because there have been a number of instances over the years where the United States has been challenged by North Korea and has not done anything. And so I think a, an important marker to lay down was the one that he laid down. But in terms of where we go from here, uh, 
the, the signal has now gone out to the North Koreans several times that there is a conversation to be had, there is a dialogue to be had. And I think it's going to be important for the North Koreans to make a decision as to whether they're prepared to engage in that sort of dialogue. In my own conversations with them in various places around the world in recent weeks, I haven't gotten any sense at all that they're prepared to engage the United States in a dialogue, particularly a dialogue uh, that includes the subject of denuclearization, which, of course, is the number one U.S. priority. So at this point, uh, unless one side or the other blinks, uh, I don't see any near-term progress for re-engagement at the negotiating table, and that's unfortunate. But what one thing that North Korea has done or hasn't done is uh, is actually provoke the U.S. in any meaningful way over about fifty plus days since mid-September. That is a positive in itself, isn't it? The fact that North Korea seems to have held back on, on doing anything particularly disruptive so far around this Trump visit and in the build-up to it. Well, I wouldn't overinterpret uh, gaps in North Korean missile testing and nuclear testing and, and other provocations as, as a positive thing. Uh, it says something about where we've come to in our relations with the North that we, we look at that as, as a positive thing. Mm. Uh, it may be that for technical reasons that the North Koreans are, uh, are pausing their nuclear weapons testing program, for example, issues that they are reportedly having with the, uh, with the mountain uh, and the stability of the nuclear testing site. It may be that in keeping with past uh, practice, they are getting ready for the right moment when they are technically as well as politically ready. So I wouldn't read too much into this. Uh, but once again, there, there has been several weeks now without something uh, happening uh, seriously in, in terms of uh, provocations or testing, etc. And so I think it's helpful to use this interanium uh, as a, an opportunity to remind the North Koreans that we stand ready to have uh, a conversation with them, but it's a conversation that has to include uh, issues of concern to the United States. Obviously, President Trump's moved on to China now. He did make it clear that China needs to play its part. Again, it's a message we've heard many times from the US in the past, but everything President Trump does and says is is renewed to a certain extent in terms of the focus and the attention on it. Uh, do you have any expectations of that trip in, in China? Well, I'm hopeful that the, the president, who, who continues to believe that China is, is capable of doing more and prepared to do more, I, I hope he succeeds in that area. But I, I have my, my doubts based on conversations with a number of, of Chinese experts uh, over the last several months. Uh, we may be reaching the outer limits of uh, how much China is prepared to do. Because any further steps that China takes in, in keeping with the U.S. overwhelming pressure policy are likely to put the North Korean regime's stability at risk because they would require China to take certain actions and uh, carry out certain policies that would squeeze the regime's finances, squeeze its fuel supply, and do several other things that could bring about precisely the sort of instability that China fears. Uh, and so I, I have my own doubts as to how much more the Chinese are willing to do, if anything, uh, but let's see what comes out of Beijing. Uh, the, the president can be a very persuasive man and thinks he's a persuasive man. And perhaps he can uh, convince the uh, the newly uh, re-elected Chinese leader right. uh, that China can do more. Speaking again of, of the relationship between uh, the U.S. and South Korea, uh, with relations between Seoul and Beijing possibly on the upward tick, and 
the U.S. getting very close to Japan, as was evidenced by uh, that uh, bond between presidents, well, President Trump and Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, to be precise. Um, did, did we see? Do you think President Trump's visit to South Korea mend any potential cracks in the relationship? Well, I think there are clearly some gaps in, in perception between uh, Washington and Seoul. Uh, I think they've been managed uh, quite well, uh, surprisingly well, considering uh, where each of the the two presidents come from politically, very different places on the political spectrum. Uh, but I've been pleasantly surprised uh, so far during the uh, opening months of the Trump administration at how well uh, the two administrations have managed these gaps. Uh, but one of the gaps, uh, quite clearly, uh, is regarding this uh, new arrangement between Seoul and Beijing over the FAD system, where uh, it seems evident that uh, Seoul undertook to make certain commitments uh, to the PRC uh, that, in the uh, in the view of a number of South Korean critics, uh, have uh, uh, limited South Korea's uh, sovereignty and sovereign decision-making over its national security. And I suspect there are probably a number of people in the U.S. administration who would agree with that assessment. Uh, I don't know whether that came up in the course of the dialogue, uh, but uh, uh, things like that uh, uh, suggest that there is an ongoing uh, difference of views uh, between Washington and Seoul. But once again, I think the key point to make is that so far the two presidents have done a very good job of managing these differences. Mm. I, I mean, some would criticize President Trump's speech yesterday at the Assembly as, as just telling South Koreans a, a history lesson that they didn't need to hear from him. On the other hand, would you suggest that uh, he... he needed to demonstrate to Seoul that he recognizes the importance of the relationship going back to the Korean War, the achievements of South Korea. Definitely. I I think one of the criticisms that's been made of the president is that he uh, tends not to take uh, the history uh, and the the past interactions of our alliance relationships as seriously as some of his presidential predecessors. And so for him to have delivered that sort of speech, reaching all the way back to the beginning of uh, the, the modern U.S.-Korea relationship uh, during the Korean War was an important way of telling uh, the international audience, but particularly the Korean audience, that he he knows the uh, the roots and the origins and the foundation of the alliance relationship and respects it. Yeah, uh, because that that I think puts to rest, uh, hopefully, puts to rest a number of the criticisms that have been leveled at him. He also spent a couple of minutes dwelling on on South Korean golfers. Uh, particularly ladies golfers, which might have seemed almost a little bit flippant uh, by comparison with the heavyweight topics. But that also seemed to send the message that, you know, he knows who he's talking about when he talks about South Koreans. Uh, When you go back to uh, very early on, uh, when he was talking about South Korea in his tweets and comments, I remember once he referred to Sharp as a South Korean company. Um, and, and, And that kind of blunder made it seem as though he didn't really know much about South Korea at all, whereas that that sort of like individual praise for South Korean golfers seemed to address or right that ship a little bit. Well, I thought it was a nice touch, and uh, I have to admit, full disclosure, I'm a five-handicap golfer, so I feel strongly about the sport. (laughs) But uh, the president is an avid golfer. He knows Koreans are avid golfers, and I think it was a nice touch to to recognize uh, the accomplishments of of Korean golfers, particularly Korean women golfers, who are spectacular uh, on the international scene. And I thought that was a very nice touch. And, and golf diplomacy has been at the heart of what President Trump's been doing with Shinzo Abe, it seems, in Japan. Exactly. But just fin- finally, just touching on any potential weakness there, 
we, we saw President Trump actually embrace one of the victims of wartime sexual slavery at a state dinner this week. And, it, OK, he didn't go as far as President Obama with his comment that that, that, that wartime sexual slavery was egregious, but um, his recognition of her being a victim seems to send still a message to Japan. Uh, well, I think it was primarily intended as a message to Korea and the Korean people uh, that uh, this president, like previous presidents, uh, understands the, the tragic history of, of not only Korean comfort women, but there were other comfort women as well. And by, uh, by the embrace, he has acknowledged his understanding of that uh, and conveyed his, his sympathy. Uh, and I thought that was uh, the right thing to do. Uh, but I think the uh, the U.S.-Japan and the U.S.-Japan ROK relationship are, are uh, sh- should not be mixed in with that. I think that's a, a very different uh, set of issues uh, and concerns and priorities. Uh, there, there's no reason why the President of the United States cannot convey uh, sympathy and understanding of this tragic history mm. uh, and at the same time urge... Uh, Japan and Korea to reconcile and also to join with the United States uh, in firming up their trilateral cooperation in the face of a, of a common threat. And then going back to the point I made earlier, that's one of the reasons why I think uh, if, if the reports about the, uh, the Seoul-Beijing uh, agreement on that are, are true, uh, that certain avenues of cooperation between the United States, Japan, and Korea have been uh, permanently closed off, I think that's a, a rather unhelpful thing to have happened. Well, we've got to leave it there, but fantastic to uh, have your expertise with us. As a former U.S. Department of State member, also non-resident senior fellow of foreign policy at Brookings Institute, Evans Revere. Thank you. It's been-